So this, this morning I want to I just talk about, just a little bit about what it means to be a shepherd in the New Covenant community. And building off what we looked at Monday, and we know the Lord is the shepherd. Uh, we see how shepherds are appointed, under shepherds are appointed in the Old Covenant community. And then Jesus Christ, of course, is the great fulfillment of all that it means to be a shepherd. David fulfillment is the is God, David, Son of God incarnate. He's also the Lamb of God. And he is the great chief shepherd. That's the language used in First Peter. He's the chief shepherd of the flock. And I don't know that much about you know, shepherding removed from the analogy. I mean, I don't know that much about actually caring for a physical flock of literal sheep. But I would imagine that one of the most important things to do if you are a shepherd is you you need to know the nature of the animal. You you need to know what sheep are like. And so what I want to do is just step off to the side for a moment. We'll come back to this theme of shepherding. Uh, But I want to read a passage which is very familiar. It's it's great new covenant passage from Jeremiah brought to us through uh, the quotation in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. It's a very, f- very familiar passage. And just don't let the familiarity with it uh, dull the power of it. You know, I think C.S. Lewis was, was very perceptive when he said that sort of the, the difficulty or the danger in vocational ministry is that those who handle sacred things too often soon become callous to their touch. And, and I think we see, saw a little bit of that even this morning. Uh, it's just so easy to take for granted. Oh, Jesus is the Son of God. It's good news. Let's 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 get on to something deep. You know, let's move on. And and yet, even before you're out of the first verse in Mark chapter one, if you're just slowing down and paying attention, uh, that's enough to cause you to worship until the Lord returns. It's just such amazing good news for people who really, apart from Jesus Christ. There is no good. It's only bad news. It's the worst news imaginable. But there's good news for us because of the King of glory uh, who comes to liberate sinful people uh, in his grace and by his sovereign power. So uh, don't let the familiarity of these words sort of obscure how wonderful they are and also how absolutely you know, category-shifting they, they were. This new covenant, it, it, it's too little to say that it's groundbreaking. You know, this is a shift of everything from what you were experiencing in the day of Jeremiah. So Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 
Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, we are thankful for the gifts that you have given us. We thank you for the gift of this conference, for your word. And Lord, we know that it really is only by your spirit that we can understand your word. And it is only by your spirit that we can respond to your word as we ought. And so we pray this morning that your spirit will not only open our minds, but we pray that your spirit will open our hearts. Help us to be a people who rejoice to put into practice what you say in your word. Lord, we would ask that you would help us to be the people that you desire us to be for the glory of your name, for the harmony of our witness, so that, a wor- so that the world can see the beauty of our shepherd king, Jesus Christ. Be with us, we pray. These are things that we cannot do but you can do by your power and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, in in some other circles, we might spend a little bit more time working through this text together. Uh, But here I can roughly assume that we recognize that the accents in the New Covenant is, is immediately on discontinuity. It will not be like the covenant. So your first accent is, it's a new covenant, but it's not like the old one. And the categories, of course, we're very familiar with. The old covenant was external. The laws outside, the laws on tablets of stone. You can read the law, you can see it, but it's not internalized. There are people, of course, who do internalize the law. They love the word of God. They rejoice in Yahweh's way. But there are other people who their external behavior might be curbed somewhat, in the same way that there's a lot of people in our societies whose external behavior is curbed by external codes of law, but there's no heart change. They, they are afraid of punishment, so they'll obey the law, but there's no delight in the law. In fact, they hate the law, and they hate the lawgiver. Their rebellion is controlled by the sword. It's external coercion, whereas here in the New Covenant, the law is internalized. It's sort of internal compulsion. We delight to honor the Lord. We want to learn his way, and our grief isn't that the Lord is our authority. Our grief is that we still labor in rebellion against him. And so our desire, really, and I trust that this is your desire, your experience as, as a believer, is that the shame and, and the regret in living now isn't that there is a Lord who rules and who is our lawgiver. The regret now is that we're not more faithful in obedience to what he has said. You know, it, it's now our sin and our rebellion that grieves us, not the Lord ruling from on high with absolute authority as the sovereign Lord. But the law is internalized. It's on our hearts. It's on our minds. He is our God. I will be their God. Again, I think this is something that, if we're just really familiar with the words, you just gloss by them. Of course, God is our God. But to stop and to think that God is our God. And we are his people. We are his people. And and I would have to say that if you have any idea uh, as to who God is, and really any idea as to who you are, that's an amazing thing. That God is our God and that we are his people. You don't need to teach anyone to know the Lord in the new covenant community. 
They all know him. Now, we, we teach people to know him better through his word, and we all try to learn to know him better. Uh, but a fundamental distinctive of being part of the New Covenant community is that every single person in that New Covenant community knows the Lord. Uh, they're in a relationship with God. Uh, they're in a covenant that's characterized by intimacy and love and fidelity and saving grace. So that you absolutely, in, in no way, uh, need to evangelize your New Covenant neighbor. You know, there's no evangelism in the New Covenant community because everyone in that community already knows the Lord from top to bottom, from least to greatest. And the reason for this, the great ground for this, is that not that we're not wicked, but our wickedness has been taken away. Not that we're not sinful, but our sins have been forgiven. All by the grace of God. And, and so you look at this, and, and you, you look at some of these distinctives of what it means to be the people of the New Covenant community, and, and these are not only phenomenal blessings, but this is a really, really special, creative work of God. I mean, He is forming a phenomenal human community of saved and forgiven sinners where they all know the Lord from the least to the greatest, where His ways are internalized, uh, where they have been, to use again, some of the language of the, the Bunyan Conference, which wasn't originated by John Riesinger. It actually has a little bit of antecedents in church history. You know, we are the elect of God. We have been chosen by God. We belong to him. He has chosen us to forgive us so that we can be his people and he can be our God and so that he can transform us and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's just an absolutely incredible group to belong to, to be part of this community. We know in Ephesians chapter 1, of course, that where, where Paul is rejoicing because of predestination. And, and I think that actually one of the things that, that has been said before, and it's absolutely true, is that it is an utter shame that even in our circles where we tend to adhere to the doctrines of grace, when people mention predestination, it's almost always in a context of polemics. So that we think of predestination in terms of schism and struggle and you know, the confrontation of good theology and bad theology. And there's elements where you have to work through some of those things. But in the New Testament, predestination, it's, when you have that language, it's in context of praise. You're rejoicing. This is a good thing. You know, this isn't a doctrine to divide. And you have to be very careful in making sure that people understand what you're saying and what you're not saying. And even more important than that, you have to make sure they understand what the Bible is saying. But if you really understand it, as Paul says, it's just something that if you're not, if predestination doesn't lead you to worship God, you haven't understood it. It's in a context of praise. And so Paul is praising God. Every spiritual blessing is ours in the heavenly realms. It's all ours. For everyone who's in Jesus Christ, for everyone who's been elected by God, for everyone who's been predestined, we, we've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we've been adopted so that now we are not only sort of in a political covenant with God, we are not sort of in some sort of political, you know, sociological arrangement with God. We're actually part of his family. Uh, that we are his sons, we are his heirs, and we are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, our elder brother. And that's, again, something which we're familiar with the language. You really think about that. We are the heirs of God. If I found out, I'm 
still actually hoping this happens, if I found out that Bill Gates had randomly picked a name out of a hat to be his sole heir, or even a co-heir of his estate, and he picked my name, I would live the rest of my life every day waking up rejoicing in what was going to be mine in the future. Every single day of my life, if I was going to get a big slice of his wealth, it would literally transform every moment of my life. But I'm an heir of God. Co-heir with Jesus Christ. Guaranteed new heavens and new earth. The home of righteousness. How many days go by without me even thinking about that? Without me even remembering that? Uh, Without that sort of eternal perspective and the glory and blessing of God controlling my my responses, just a little petty annoyances of life. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We've been adopted. We belong to Him. We've all been given the Holy Spirit. To be sealed with the Holy Spirit. Every one of us has been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. Every one of us, in another analogy, is part of the body of Christ. Working together. Fundamental unity. Binding a diversity together. And this is actually one of the very interesting things. Is that you know when you look around at the church, you should recognize that, that people are not supposed to be like you in the church. And Paul deals with this. You go to your doctor for a medical checkup and... And the doctor says to you, oh, you know, I have some, I have some kind of bad news for you. You know, you're, you're one big eye. You know, like, that's not a good thing, right? For one, I mean, you wouldn't hear what he said, right? If you're just one eye. But you, you, if everyone's just like you, you, you need a diversity of parts working together. But it's all part of one body. So it's, it's a diversity, a necessary diversity. You don't have health without diversity, but it's bound together in a fundamental unity. Body of Jesus Christ, where Paul will also say, this is very important pastorally, in, in the church, I don't have that much experience in, in pastoral ministry. But in the church, I tend to find two types of people on, on the extremes of body life. Both of whom Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 12. There are people who will basically say, I just don't feel like I have anything to contribute in the body. I, I, I can't preach. I can't sing. I, I can't do this. It's just... I just don't have anything to offer. Well, well, Paul deals with that in his analogy of the body. It's like the foot looking up at the hand and going, oh, I can't, I can't, I'm not a hand, so I'm not important. And you need to say, no, no, you're you're vitally necessary. We can't get along without you. On the other hand, there are people who have the opposite problem. My function's important. I don't need you. I'm the hand. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty important. You're, you're a foot. I, I can get along just fine without you. And in the church, we, some, we see that. Not least in people who are in positions of leadership. My position is the important one. I can get along just fine without you. But I am indispensable in the reverse relationship. We are in First Peter, living stones, temple, Holy nation, royal priesthood, and then this very amazing statement, God's special possession. God's special 
possession. In Ephesians, very similar to what Peter says in 1 Peter, in chapter 2 there, in Ephesians, we are told that, that again, we are God, chosen by God, verses 11 through 14 of chapter 1, we are God's possession. And it's the language in Greek is very, it's very rare. The vocabulary is very rare. It refers to what's chosen by lot. And we know, of course, from Proverbs that that's not random. You know, the Lord controls the lot. And so the image there is that God, who is in sovereign control of where the lot ends up falling, has cast the lot, and the church is what belongs to him. The church is his portion by lot, the law that he controlled when he cast. You know, we are what God wants. We are what God has chosen. We have been chosen by God to be his special possession. And, and then when you start to think about the majesty of God and the fact that he doesn't need anything, It becomes absolutely astounding to consider that the God who is perfectly self-sufficient, perfectly self-contained, perfectly self-fulfilled, who literally nothing can be added to him, decides to create out of nothing a world which is going to be populated by sinners. And in all the things God could have made, which presumably he could have made a lot more than he did, he could have made a lot of things, what he made to be his special eternal possession was sinners like us to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and form into a new covenant community. We are God's special possession. He didn't come into a pre-made universe and look around for what would be the best thing to take. He made us all. He chose us to buy us by the blood of Christ, to belong to him as his special possession. We are the bride of Christ. We are the wife of the lamb, the lamb who is the shepherd. Monday night, Larry McCall recounted the story of being a sassy 16-year-old, and I'm almost, you know, he, he picked on someone that who wasn't ready to be picked on. He didn't tell him that he was going to ask him a question. I'm almost tempted to ask Larry a few questions about what he said and, you know, all those sorts of things, but we, we won't do that uh, just right now. Uh, and he was a sassy 16-year-old. Remember, obviously never forgot. His father sitting him down. Don't talk about my wife that way. Les Clemens Jr., the pastor of this church, great friend. Actually, I lived with he and his family for eight months when I was his assistant pastor in Lindsay just before I got married. Love their whole family. And I can honestly say that the, the grace of God at work in Les's life is, is sort of instantiated in the fact that, that he, to this day, tolerates me. You know, and, and I, I, he, he loves me. And I'll tell you this. If I were to go up to him and say, you know, Les, you know, I've, I've known your family for a long time. I have to tell you something. Lori, that's Les's wife, Lori is just driving me crazy. You know, she's just doesn't seem to be very well organized. Doesn't seem to get with a program. Doesn't seem to understand, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish. She's supposed to be helping me. You know, I just less I just got to tell you, I, you, you got to help me. You got to speak to Lori. She's just a dumb sheep. 
The worst thing of all was Les walked in halfway through that and didn't get the context. <laughs> Let's just go to the question and answer period. <laughs> if I was tracking with Peter Gentry, and I'm not sure that I was at every moment, but if I was, if I was tracking with Peter Gentry... If I said that about Laurie to Les, Les would cut a covenant with me. Right? <laughs> he would reaffirm his vows with Laurie by walking through my severed pieces. <laughs> but pastorally, we must never forget that the New Covenant flock is just one analogy. It's just one metaphor. It's just one image. Those sheep are the bride of the Lamb. That flock is God's special possession. That flock is the body of Christ. That flock is that new covenant community where they all know the, and I realize in the local church, I, I get this, and I'm not trying to make some sort of a clean, you know, I'm not making a, a systematic statement about you know, the nature of the church. But I realize the local church is, is a bit of a mixed bag. I, I get that. But this new covenant community, they're regenerate. They have the spirit. They have gifts. They're, they're a part of the body. You're only one part of the body. You need them as much as they need you. And, and so, in the same way that we all know perfectly well, that if I were to say something about Lori, you know, being the husband isn't going to like that. And rightly so. Because that is absolutely, unacceptably demeaning and insulting to his wife. And so when we step over retaining our metaphors, recognizing that different analogies function differently in different contexts. I think an enormous mistake has been to too often consider the shepherd flock imagery in terms of pastor church as being sort of the dominant image or the dominant New Testament metaphor to describe the people of God. So that pastors, when they're thinking sort of narrowly about pastoral ministry, they're almost always thinking about the, the, the church as just the flock of God. And, and in the same way that a human shepherd is wiser and better and smarter than, you know, literal sheep, then, then of course, the, the pastor in the church is going to be wiser and better than, than just the flock. I was like, I, I belong not just to a different category, I belong to a different species. That's an, just an absolutely enormous mistake. It's an enormous mistake because it's taking one image, ignoring all of the others, and then I think drawing on the wrong aspects of it anyway. If you think that the imagery of sheep in the New Testament, the New Covenant, is designed to teach that pastors and elders are smart and sheep are dumb, you just have absolutely no textual basis whatsoever. I mean, the image is just never applied in reference to intelligence. Right? It just isn't. The, 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 the distinction is never pastors and elders are, are, are smart and sheep are dumb. 
Because don't forget, too, just like in Ezekiel, and just like in John 10, that every pastor, Lord willing, every pastor is also one of those sheep of the flock. You have to be a found, sought, and blood-bought sheep before you can be a shepherd. In fact, you can't even you know, be converted and be, start being a, you know, a pastor elder right away. And Paul says that to Timothy. So you are always, as a pastor, you are always still a sheep. You have to be a sheep. That comes first. And being a shepherd, just like that Ezekiel imagery where, yes, in one way God says you're the shepherds, but then in the same judgment, same people, God says you're, I'm going to judge from one sheep and another. You're still part of the flock. And so you must never lose your identity as a pastor, as an elder. At best, you're still just a sheep. You're still a sheep. Now, by the relentless force of deductive logic, if you think that the sheep imagery is used in the New Testament to mean that everyone who's characterized as being a sheep is dumb, then by deductive logic, if you're a sheep, you're dumb too. Right? And so if you think that the imagery is designed to teach that sheep in the flock of God are dumb, I guarantee you're right in at least one case. (laughs) The imagery isn't used. It's just not used in terms of intelligence. It just isn't. The shepherd imagery, when applied to the under-shepherds, is used primarily of care. You are to take care of God's sheep. In other words, to use a different analogy, you are to take care of the lamb's bride. Now, I'll tell you, if you bring that imagery over into it, I'm going to be a lot more careful about how I take care of Lori than I am about a sheep. And so we want to keep these images together. We don't want to just sort of take one and make it the absolute image. We want to hold them all together so that when I'm taking care of the flock of God, there's that shepherd sheep imagery, but I'm also, I'm working with Jesus' wife. I want to be really, really careful with how I handle her. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. There's just some instructions that are given to elders, uses the shepherd imagery, so this is a natural text uh, to use. First Peter chapter 5, we'll just make a few comments about this. It says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And, with the, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We saw Monday, Ezekiel 34. The Lord is a shepherd, but he appoints people as under-shepherds in his flock uh, who are absolutely at all times accountable to him. In Jeremiah 3, Chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, we hear this. This is a great promise, new covenant blessing. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. 
Now, this is obviously you get the husband imagery, you have the return of the faithless imagery, you know, the shepherd imagery, the election language. And it is rich, rich passage. Ultimately, of course, Jesus is the one who's going to bring all of this to, to fulfillment. We understand that. But a tremendous blessing of God is, is appointing under shepherds in the covenant community who are, are characterized by being after his heart, who are going to lead the people with knowledge and understanding. First Peter 5, you know, that focus is on what is this going to look like? What does it look like to be a shepherd after God's own heart? And, and I do want to say this because this is uh, not a weakness in, in what I'm what I'm saying, but it's just a focal point. I've been focusing, obviously, a lot more on the responsibility of shepherd to sheep. And and I would argue, you could do a whole whole lot of hours, especially as a pastor, on the responsibility that your people have to you. You know, they just might be a little self-serving, you know, to do that. There's another side of the coin here, but the focus is on from the shepherd to the sheep. And here's where, actually, I think, to borrow from, from Larry McCall again, you know, I think that sometimes a lot of pastors, and, and I would be guilty of this as much as anyone, operates on that sort of same two-cup principle, where as long as the church is pouring encouragement uh, and blessing into me, then, then I'll take care of them, and, and oh, I start getting criticized, or you don't think that, that was the greatest sermon you've ever heard, and, and, and you've now told me that every Sunday you know, from the last few years that I've been here, you know, and you, you, like, you miss so-and-so, and when Pastor so-and-so was here, and, and you know, he used to do all these things, and you don't do any one of those things you know, half as well as he did, and, and, you know, and you don't dress very well, and on and on and on and on and on and on. And, and she says, you know what, well, I'm not going to, you take care of yourself then. You know, you just, you just feed yourself. You, you, just, you, just, you just wander off. You, you, you end up where you end up. And, and uh, you know, if, if the wolves are howling, uh, I'll just put in the earplugs, I need a nap. You know, like you're just, you're just on your own. But, but we're called, I think in the same way that, that husbands and wives, as Larry was calling, honestly, listen, as pastors, we're called to take care of the flock, regardless of what the flock's doing. It's just our job. That, that's, our, that's what God has given us to do. It makes it a lot easier when there's a good, reciprocal, loving, harmonious relationship. I'm not disputing that. But nonetheless, shepherds, pastors, elders, we're, we're called to a job no matter, no matter what's going on. We can't, we can't condition the role on the basis of how people are responding to it. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Beautiful way of you know, Peter identifying, you know what, I know what you're going through. He, he's already identified himself as an apostle, so this isn't him saying, I don't have any authority here, or we're all just equal. You know, when he begins the book, he says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, so he has that apostolic authority, but here he's also saying, I'm also an elder. He's a witness of Christ's sufferings who also share in the glory to be revealed. And I think that this is one of the things that we always need to remember, is that no matter how well or poorly the ministry is going, there's an eschatological revelation of glory that anchors our hope. So that our hope isn't based on how many people showed up, if our attendance graph is going up or down, or the, you know, the, the people counting the offerings, if it's going up or down. or No. Our hope isn't building a successful ministry here. Our, our hope is being faithful to Jesus Christ and sharing in the glory when he returns. That's when we receive the reward. That's what we should be looking towards. Or, or, I will share in the glory to be revealed. And then he says this. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Acts twenty twenty eight. 
Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And one of the greatest statements we have about the value of the blood of Christ is in this very book, First Peter. It is not with perishable things like silver or gold that we've been redeemed, that we've been purchased, that we've been bought, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so this flock that we are appointed by the Spirit to be overseers or elders or shepherds, it's been blood-bought. It's, it's the value of what was paid for it is infinite. It's the blood of Christ has been paid to buy this church as God's special possession for all time, to be married to Him. Be shepherds of God's flock. Now listen, I... I I don't know very much. I don't know very much about shepherding, but I, I imagine that this is probably how something like this would work. Let's say that uh, Jim Clemens Sr. has a flock of sheep. And Jim, because he is just obscenely affluent and wealthy, decides that he doesn't want to take care of his sheep anymore. He, he's going to hire me bad decision but let's say he does that i'm going to be the guy who takes care of his sheep and i'm just a young guy so i i, I watch over those sheep and i drive away the predators you know, sunburned in the day you know, shivering cold in the damp and dew at night year after year after year and let's say i'm let's say i'm a, a really good shepherd why not really good at this and the sheep flock gets bigger Wool's really good. Uh, I don't know anything else about sheep that would be an index of its quality. Uh, mutton tastes good. I don't know. It's all you know. It's a it's a really really good situation, and and I and I labor decade after decade, 30, 40, 50 years, and I get to the point where, uh, where by some miracle, given our age span difference, Jim's still alive, and I'm going to retire, and I and, and I say to Jim, you know what? I, I've worked for 50 years here. This one flock. You know, there are other offers. I could have gone somewhere else. I could have gone to bigger flocks where there were assistant under shepherds. But I stayed here with your flock. And I just want you to know, I'm, I'm going to retire and, I, and, I'm, and I'm taking them with me. Well, well, well wait a minute. You know, what do you mean? Like, those are my sheep. They say, oh, no, 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 no. Over the years, I, I've referred to them as my flock. And I've taken care of them. And, and I was there. They said, the founding of this flock, charter founding shepherd. And so this is, this is my group. And you're going to say, no, you, you, you've completely, completely misunderstood what you were doing. There wasn't one second when any of those sheep belonged to you. They always belonged to me. I'm the owner. You're the shepherd. Now, now shepherding doesn't give you ownership. That's just completely, it's a huge mistake. But isn't it true that sometimes... Over the course of ministry, we, and I understand the vocabulary. We started talking about my church. At my church, we do things this way, and that's fine. I mean, when I was in, when I was in school, we talked about my high school. I didn't think I owned it or anything like that. You know, so, so you understand the vocabulary. But you just be careful that over time, you don't start to think that there actually is some sort of purchase or ownership there. The sheep don't belong to you. They never do. Never. And they can't. They will never belong to you because they were bought by Christ with His blood. There's nothing you can ever do to own any one of them. In fact, you don't even own yourself. So it is God's flock. It's not yours. 
Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. So you care for them, but they don't belong to you. And they never will. Then he, there's three contrasts, the not-but contrast. In fact, one of the things that's very interesting sometimes, I think you know, said, said about Ezekiel 34, uh, negative examples can be almost just as powerful as positive examples. You see what you're not supposed to be like. And in the New Testament, here, you know, sometimes you're told what you're not supposed to be doing. And, and I think, especially when you have a high view of inspiration, you know that, that Peter's just not sort of making stuff up, or there, isn't, there aren't three things that would have been equally good to say. But when we're told what we're not supposed to be like, I think that's a really, really good sign that these are the dangers and temptations. This is why you need to be warned about these things particularly. You, you couldn't just change them for three other things. This is what your dan- this is where your danger points are. I remember being very convicted and, and still am about thinking, you know, of all the things Paul could say to fathers, all the things he could say, do not be harsh with your children. Why? Because isn't that going to be a tendency? I see that in my life, the tendency to, to be harsh with my children. Like Paul could have said a million things. That would have been really good in terms of advice for being a parent, father. Don't be harsh with your children. That's going to be a danger. Here, what are our dangers? You must watch over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. You are to love God. You're to love his flock. And this is not to be just a job where you check in and check out. This is not something you do so you can get a paycheck. This is something you do because you want to. And I realize, you know, you might not feel there's a duty. You know, you're not going to feel like doing everything every moment of every day. And there are going to be some times where, you know, you feel like giving up and, and there are different parts of the job that you're going to like more than others. You know, but you know, it's something that you want to do. It's a desire of your heart. I want to be serving this way. Not because you have to, not because you feel guilty, but not because your parents will be proud of you if you do, but just because you want to, you want to serve God's flock, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. I don't, I'll be very honest, I, I am in no stretch of the imagination a biblical scholar. I, I hope I love the Bible. I, I hope I'm learning it. I, I hope that I'm, really hope I'm starting to put it into practice more in my life. I really hope that's true. Um, my sort of academic interests are, are in apologetics. And so one of the things that I've done is the last year, I've done a lot of reading um, primary accounts of living in the Russian gulag system, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and, and others like that, and reading primary accounts of the concentration camps in Germany. Because one of the things you have to deal with is, is you can't candy coat. This is a wicked, fallen, disgusting, horrible world. And if we're going to talk about, you know, sovereignty of God and and how a good God can exist with evil, you know, you better not water down how evil the evil is. I read a very interesting book lately, or just very recently, Faith and Victory in Dachau. Dachau is one of the concentration camps in Germany. Not, not... I want to say not as bad, but at least not reputed after the Second World War to be as bad as Auschwitz. Horrible conditions. It was called Faith and Victory in Dachau. And as a minister, he's an evangelical minister who's put into the concentration camp system precisely because he's preaching the gospel. 
and, and he's, he's describing the conditions. And it's, it's, you, you know, I, I, I'm squeamish enough that I still can't watch. You know, there's lots of archival footage you can see. I can't watch it. And so you've been reading these descriptions, just appalling. And he starts talking about starting a Bible study, knowing what will happen to him if he's caught. But one passage he says, you know, I'm out. And if you're a shepherd, you just can't help but see the sheep wherever you are. He said, and I knew God called me to be a shepherd in that concentration camp. I, he talks about his, his heart starts to burn because he sees those sheep. He sees those who need the gospel. He sees those who need the comfort of Jesus Christ. He sees those going through the valley of the shadow of death. And he wants to come and be the hands and feet of the shepherd to, to bring them gospel comfort. That's a shepherd. Not because you have to. In fact, there there's, there's every incentive not to. Not because you have to, but because you're willing. You want to, as God wants you to be. And then when I index that against the petty grievances and I complaints I have, the things that make me want to not shepherd effectively, I think, you know, this is a hard, this is an example of someone who's a real shepherd of God. Not because you must, because you're willing. Second, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not greedy, but eager to serve. Now, this is obviously financial. You could also say that, that you shouldn't be serving. Or you're not serving. You shouldn't be in that position if it's about your ego, about how it makes me feel good or how it you know, allows me to have a little bit of validation after being you know, a weak runt who has bullied my whole life or, you know, or whatever issues you're trying to overcome you know, through your career or whatever it is. You know, I'm going to be someone. You know, and, and as long as the sheep are, are, are sort of giving me plaudits and, and recognizing my greatness, and as long as they can prop up my really fragile ego just for another couple of days, then I'm going to stay here and I'm going to serve them. And, and then you find you know, that you start, being, uh, you start in, 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 indulging in favoritism. So the people who really, they like you, you'll go minister to them, or the, the people who you might get some benefit from, oh, you'll, you'll go visit them a little bit more often. They, they, they tend, to, tend to give you a, a nice Christmas card with a little bit of money in it. Right? Oh, there, this, you know, here's this person, they're a key leader in the church, and, and their, their mom went to the hospital. Oh, Political move. You know, I got a key leader's power here. Oh, you're gonna go, gonna visit, visit the mom. Someone else, no money, not on any committees, not on any boards, just comes and sits and maybe doesn't doesn't understand how wonderful you are in every way. And and you know, well, their their mom's sick, you know. I I'm I'm called to preach the word. You know, I, I it, I'm gonna be in the office today. I, this is this is how I'm gonna do it. I'm, I'm no, we, we start to, when we're in it for ourselves, we start to make all kinds of decisions that reflect our own selfishness, nothing to do with the flock of God. Just my ego, my gain. Third, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Not lording it over, but being an example. Not harsh or domineering or arrogant, but humble, virtuous, Godly character. 
One of the amazing things in First Timothy, we were talking about you know, elders and deacons. Besides being apt to teach for elders, you know, all the qualifications are character things. Isn't that astounding? Not, oh, do you have some business acumen? Not, do you know how to balance a budget? Not, you know, just what's your character? Are you an example? Can people look to you? Not as anyone who's perfect. My goodness. But as someone who is, there's a bit of a general consistency between what you profess and how you're walking with the Lord. And of course, if we're being consistent, then a whole huge amount of that is is transparently saying to people, you know, I've said this, and it's funny, I've been at the church where I'm at now for two years. Everyone knew it long before I started saying it. But I said, you know what, I've been here for a little while, and, and you know that this is true. Like, I have sinned against many of you. And many of you have all of you have sinned against me. You know? you know, and if I haven't sinned against you yet, just wait. It's just a matter of time. Like, like I am a sinner. And, and so the only thing that I have any hope in is that God's a God of grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. That's it. And so we want a general consistency, but if we're being consistent at all, we'll be preaching grace. I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. Not by a mile. But by this grace of God, we're walking with the Spirit. We're growing. There's progress. Let your progress be evident to all, life and doctrine. The shepherd metaphor then is, as it's picked up here, is an image of being disinterested in self, recognizing that it's God's flock, serving not because you have to, but because you want to, not in it for yourself, and not domineering people, but looking for every opportunity to serve them in every possible way. Now, this couldn't be more different from the reading of the imagery, which would be the shepherd is the ruler of the dumb sheep, the dumb flock. But you couldn't be more off the ethos of how the biblical imagery is deployed than to have that sort of understanding of the image. We are not to read it in terms of the ancient Near East where we're a petty king in our own little kingdom, a little tyrant. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, the great shepherd, washed the feet of his disciples. He was an example of humility. And even more, going to the death on the cross to buy those sheep to belong to him. When the chief shepherd appears, a reminder, there's a chief shepherd. You will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That's a great encouragement to do a job well done, isn't it? To, to really serve. And you get a crown of glory far surpassing anything that you could ever hope to get you know, in this world. A crown of glory that will never fade away. Well, just I just want to mention just a couple things here. Just take two minutes. So practically then, I... Uh, I'm not real, real good at uh, practical stuff, which is why I leave it to the last minute or two after three hours. Uh, but one of the things I think that is helpful to do, of course, is that if you're not the chief shepherd, then you need to be pointing people to the one who is, right? So always be pointing people back to their real shepherd. Always be pointing people, you know, past and through you to to Jesus. And then I think, secondly, that if virtue is so important as it is, the more you live your life as a sheep following the shepherd, the better the example you will be to your people about how they're supposed to relate to a shepherd. So you just need to be really faithful following Jesus. You, know, you need to be a good sheep 
in obedience to him. And I think you need to learn how to shepherd by how Jesus shepherds you. This is one of the very distressing realizations in my life as a parent. I recognize that I am far harsher on my children when they don't obey me than God is on me when I don't obey him. God is so patient with me. God is so gracious. Now, part of that is he disciplines. Ah, absolutely. But I'm so quick to be harsh. God is so patient with me. God disciplines me for my good, not because he's in a bad mood and wants some peace and quiet. God is so patient. I think, how does, G- how does God shepherd me? Is God cuffing me up the side of the head, telling me how dumb I am all the time? You know, he, he cares for me so well. And so if I'm to be a shepherd in the pattern of Jesus, I need to shepherd my people the way Jesus shepherds me. And to be very honest, I think sometimes the way that the Lord parents us the way that Jesus shepherds us is very different from how we parent our kids and how we shepherd his people. The more like Jesus Christ you are, the better the shepherd you'll be. You feed them with the word of God. And you always remember that the people you're preaching to are either going to be married to the lamb in the end or they will cry out for hills and rocks to fall on them for the day of the wrath of the lamb has come. And who can stand? And since you can't do one single blessed thing to deliver anyone from that situation, you need to be pointing them back to the Lamb to put their faith in Him now. Because when He returns, there is eschatological glory for His children. But there is eternal wrath and condemnation for those who are not His sheep. The only other thing I'm going to say is there's a lot of debate about church structure. And that's where we start to get into problems, and that's why, unfortunately, I don't have any time. Um, But I'll say this. There is not a flowchart, a hierarchical arrangement. There, There is no church constitution. There are no bylaws. There are no policies and procedures manuals. There is no church structure under the sun that will keep a church from imploding and exploding if people's hearts aren't in the right place. And I'll tell you this too. On the other hand, I might not be very efficient. Being inefficient is one of the hallmarks of my life. might not be very efficient, but you find a church where people are just, they love each other and they love Christ. I don't care how bad your constitution is. I don't care how much of a mess your bylaws are. There you will have a church which stands as a light on a hill to the glory of God. You know, give me a church where where people love Jesus and love each other, and I'll take that over any church that's organized, you know, with with the one biblical church government model. Oh, external. We should have learned this from the old covenant. You, you have all the documents you want. It's not going to make any difference. It's, it's a matter of the heart. Yeah, there's better or worse ways of doing. I, I get that, but in the end, it's the spirit at work in our heart by the grace of God. It distresses me that there's such a, a focus on the external structures when the real issue is always going to be the heart. It's always going to be what's going on inside. And you see this in multiple ways. Is when you go back through these three things, especially not greedy for not pursuing dishonest gain and not lording it over those entrusted to you, you ever notice that, uh, you know, 
Blake very, very vaguely alluded to some pastor this morning. Uh, I have no idea what he was talking about. Uh, I couldn't pe- put the pieces together. So maybe during the question and answer period, you can just name the name. That might be a lot more helpful for us. You know, but I'll tell you, as I, as I look at some ministries, some big ministries, with quote-unquote celebrity pastors, and, and, and then you start seeing some of the complaints that are coming from their people and, and some of the things that are being uncovered and, and all the rest. And, and one of the amazing things to me is how often these problems come together. Authority, abuse of power, greed for gain and money. It's not just one, but how many times are you looking and going, oh, it's very, very interesting. People are coming away saying, you have problems with this and with this. Well, let me just look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Well, I'm not surprised because if you're not, if you're not being willing, recognizing that it's God's flock, then you're going to eventually, it's going to be about you, what you can get out of it. And when people aren't giving you what you want, then you'll just get rid of them because they're not towing the line you want them to tow. Abuse of power and authority comes with greed and selfishness. This is not a shock when you see both coming together. And how many times do we see that in some of these ministries? One of the regrettable things, too, is that you have to get to a certain size before people even know that you're around. So this isn't just the people in churches with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. There are, there are a ton of petty tyrants running around with a church of 20 people who are just as much in it for themselves. Just no one cares about them. That's the difference. Right? And no one's tweeting anything they say. Well, let me just close with this. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We have... A little bit of time uh, set aside for questions. I'm going to tell you this just right up front. You absolutely do not need to manufacture questions out of fear that I'm embarrassed if you don't have any. You know, So if you really don't have a question, don't try to think up one. If you have something you want to ask, that's fine. But don't just, don't just make one up. It's kind of insulting, actually, because if you ask a question, it makes it seem like I wasn't very clear in what I said, or that I didn't speak the definitive word on the subject. I have a pretty fragile ego, and uh, I'm afraid of I'm afraid of the American military. <laughs> I didn't have to manufacture a question. I've had it for a couple of days. Um, going back to Psalm 23, by the way, uh, John Jeffrey from Scranton, going back to Psalm 23, and uh, folks like myself, uh, the older you get, the more funerals you go to yeah. and you gather. Funeral cards and obituaries from friends and loved ones. And the psalm is on there, and so that resonates. We understand the association, um, and the fix for that may be something that we heard yesterday. 
along with bringing in the whole counsel of God in John 10 and other passages, the bigger picture, the larger context. But uh, one of the fixes that was mentioned was reading the book of Psalms as a book and each Psalm as a chapter. And just to give you the opportunity to interact with reading Psalm 22, 23, and 24 together, or at least Psalm 23 and 24 with the Shepherd King connection. Okay. Um, I, I don't have any sort of expertise beyond what any of you would have you know, to, to answer a question like that. Uh, I don't. I don't have an issue with Psalm 23 being used in funeral context. In fact, I think it's actually very good that we do. Now, one of the things that I think, and this is this is one. Of, I go back and forth on this too about you know the Lord's Prayer. Well, we all have that nailed down in King James too, in King James language as well. But you know that you know for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not part of the original text. Um, Yesterday I went home and I read all the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and confirmed that that was true. Uh, you know, uh, so you know that's not part of the original text. It, it, but but it's culturally, is, is it wrong to say that? Can we pray that? You know, well, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. Is, it. is it part of the biblical text? I'm not going to read it as part of the Bible. But it, I pray all kinds of things that aren't from biblical text quotations, right? And it has a cultural f- function. So for Psalm 23, you know, there's a sense in which we understand what it means to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And really, there is no darker valley than going through death. So I think you can apply that imagery, recognizing that it's more than that, but it could include that whole grieving process for those who are left behind and for the one who goes through. That there's no darker valley than death itself, which is why that's how the imagery works, right? So I, so I don't have any sort of issue with that. More canonically, and this is where I'll put my, my cards sort of on the table, is that I think, I, I, I think that Psalm 22, we of course associate in fulfillment senses with the cross, which we have to, not, not, lead, not just because Jesus says, my God, my God, why, why has thou forsaken me? All that's Psalm 22.1. But you go through Psalm 22, there are all kinds of things that are fulfilled in the cross. Right? Like, and not just sort of the details about you know, casting lots for the clothes. You just go through the, the whole thing is Jesus. Even the language of insult is drawn from Psalm 22. Exactly that. Exactly that same way, right? But I really believe that, that, that Psalm 22 is, when it's being fulfilled in Christ, all of Psalm 22 is being fulfilled in Christ. So, and Psalm 22 does not end with being forsaken through death. In fact, Psalm 22 ends with, um, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised and scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his, fa- he has not hidden his face from him. But has listened to his cry for help. Remember, Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He already knows he's going to be raised from the dead. He said so a bunch of times. Disciples never picked up on that part of you know, his predictions. He's the good shepherd. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to pick it up. He knows he's going to be raised from the dead. And so when he's forsaken, he's genuinely forsaken by God. It's not just smoke and mirrors or histrionics or anything. But he knows the end from the beginning. 
And so he also knows that he is going to have victory. The Father is listening to his prayer. He is going to be delivered. There is life after the cross, such that it starts to go on. And in the end, that this whole story is going to be told in the middle of all of his people for all time. I think that's absolutely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then that ends, forsaken by God, deliverance, resurrection, life, this message being taught in to posterity for all generations, and then you're into Psalm 23. And so, yeah, I think that you are supposed to read those sort of in conjunction. It's not just sort of, well, something had to be next. <laughs> right. All right, anything else? Before Les asks the question, I'd like to just clarify something I said about Lori. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Go on. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah, Jack has one more. This will be the last one. You're using a Google Maps analogy. Uh, it's interesting where you have street view and you have the aerial view with it, it brings in the Google Maps and then you can zoom in and go into street view. That... Uh, Perhaps you could react to this as uh, this this message that you just preached. We're taking home. What a way to end the conference. So that preaching the gospel to ourselves. should take us a couple places as we zoom in with the gospel on ourselves and get that street view that there's two places that I can think of, perhaps you can think of another, as we as shepherds and as sheep preach the gospel to ourselves where we find ourselves on a level playing field. And that's at the foot of the cross and before the throne where he is now. And that as we zoom in, the gospel zooms us in on who we are and where we are. And then we look at that street view. We find ourselves on those two level playing fields in the daily preaching of the gospel to ourselves. And perhaps you'd want to pick up on that. Yeah, you, you know, I, I think the you know, I, I'm not going to pick up on that. Um, just because I don't think I can really say anything that's going to be more helpful than what you just said. So we'll... We'll just leave it there and thank you.